Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fascinate Pod with me, Sam Brown. Today's guest I've been looking forward to for quite a while. He's the CEO of a company called Drug Science. I'll let him explain what they believe in and what they're trying to work towards. He's very knowledgeable and he shares a lot of his first-hand experience that he's had with drug addicts trying to turn their lives around. We speak about drug policy, how he thinks it should change for the benefit of everyone, not just the benefit of the people on the drugs or involved in the drugs, but for the betterment of the wider society. He also tells me a little bit about the recent change in the law for marijuana and what effects that's had on the people who require it for medicinal use. Anyway, he's a fascinating guy, so listen up. Here he is, David Badcock. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Firstly, I've got a couple of questions about the word drug. In your personal life or your professional life, if you had to explain to people more than, say, what an accountant would, what the industry is that you work in, what you do as a, as a profession. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something that comes up quite a lot when I, when I talk about what I do uh, for my work and explain what drug science does as an organisation. It often requires quite a lot of explanation for people to understand exactly what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve. And the word drugs has a lot of connotations with it, as you say, and often people have a predisposed idea from when they were younger, the things that they've heard in the media or from the government. And their idea of drugs often is quite negative. They, you know, people view drugs as bad and they will do damage to you if you take them. And you have to be very careful in terms of what you're doing and you know that when I when I talk about drug science to people who don't have a good idea about what we do I find myself explaining this is what it is this is this is what it means for drugs and the people who take them and uh yeah leads to quite a lengthy conversation sometimes yeah do you feel like over the past few years it's become a little bit better known or is this public opinion changing at all yeah I think I think I think generally there is a better understanding about drugs and the effects that they have on people um but there's still an awful lot of stigma attached and you know people uh have you know very strong opinions about people who take drugs for you know regardless of what those reasons are why they might take them there's a lot of predisposed opinions a lot of stigma that we have to fight every day and that's what we're here to do really before we get on to what you're currently working with i just want to sort of dig into where you come from a bit of your professional history really so yeah sure do you want to explain what your background's in yeah definitely well so i've been working in the the drug and alcohol sector for about 15 years now um Previously to that, I've been working in charity. I was working in the charity sector for a long time, um, but in a in a different type of uh, environment. I used to work with people from ethnic backgrounds, um, helping them to integrate into living in the UK. So people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, people with training difficulties or employment problems, we helped them to kind of overcome those barriers. I remember about fifteen years ago. I was looking to change my job, just kind of a step up in my career, really, and coming across this job, this very small drug charity in East London, and thought, well, that's an interesting job, but didn't really know much about it at all. Didn't really know much about drugs, to be honest. Didn't know much much more than anybody else would do. The concept of needle exchange or opiate replacement therapy and things like that were completely uh, new things to me, really. Uh, so I applied for this job, and I was very grateful to be offered it and started my career in the drug sector from that point onwards and it's been every single day has been 
another learning process from from that point onwards. Every day, I learn something new about drugs, uh, particularly from speaking to people who would use drug services, um, you know, to overcome their problems and their difficulties. The small charity that you talk about was that Mainliners. That was that was the yeah exactly yes that was the the charity that I came to uh, when I moved to London that's right obviously you're you're going to be able to explain that a little bit better but it was about the spread of HIV and helping people with the needle exchange yeah exactly that that's that's exactly it. so Mainliners was a fantastic little charity it's actually one of the very first drug services in the UK that offered harm reduction to people and it back when it was quite a new concept in in the in the early 90s and it really kind of blazed the trail with its services uh, that it offered to people in parts of the most deprived areas of london so sort of lambeth southwark and lewisham and the charity offered outreach services so it would go out to communities and go in into those communities on the streets and offer needle exchange services harm reduction services safer injecting advice uh all really quite groundbreaking stuff back then and um it was and, and it really focused on uh, both hiv and hepatitis c um hepatitis c was actually very newly recognized back then as well as hardly anybody knew anything about it but Hep C is a is a real issue for people who inject drugs, and uh, the focus of the charity was to really help people to not get affected by those drugs uh, or those those um, viruses in the first place. But if they do, how they can lead a safe life or lead a much better life. So there was a support system built around that as well. It wasn't just yeah. the drug taking uh, support. It was. Uh, sort of a lifestyle support as well. Yeah, that, and I think that's what made Mainliners quite unique compared to other services. That it not you're absolutely right. Not only did it offer services for people who took drugs, but also really looked at the issue of bloodborne viruses and you know how they are contracted, how to prevent them from being contracted, what to do if somebody's has a virus, and you know all that kind of stuff. So um, great little charity, really, really great place to work. And and that was my introduction to the. To the drug sector. Uh, before that, I really knew very little about it, and I remember. I always remember um, when, within the first few weeks of joining, I went out on a an outreach program, and one cold evening, and it must have been sort of late November. We were literally we we pulled up in a van outside Brixton Tube Station, and the guy I was just observing, but the guys I was with had these bags and those bags were full of drug injecting paraphernalia needles and spoons and uh, all the all the stuff that you use the the acid and the filters and everything that you use to uh, inject drugs and we would stood outside the tube station in you know rush hour it was five o'clock in the afternoon and hundreds of people going back and forth and then people would just you know just come up to us and say you know i say this is what this is what i need and the outreach worker would spend a good 10 minutes just chatting to that person, finding out about what they're doing, what they're up to, and then had the opportunity to give them some advice, but then would give them this pack. And then that guy would go away and, you know, just go around the corner and obviously would be using um, within moments of that. And I remember thinking, I couldn't believe it really. I thought, is this real? <laughs> is this what, this is actually happening? People people are coming and they're taking up needles and they're going away and they're injecting but i think really quickly i started to understand why that is such an essential service to give because the point is 
people will take drugs whatever happens they're going to take drugs and really the role of mainliners and the role the most important role that we had to play was if they're going to do it that's their choice but we can help them to do that as safely as possible and actually the benefits to those people being engaged with us and using our services were huge and would have a really positive impact on their lifestyle you know their well-being did you find that a lot of these people were happy with their lifestyle or were they coming to you as a transition to try and get off some of the drugs that they were taking i think i'm not sure you you would consider that they would be happy with their lifestyle um you know there's not many people that i've met and i've met many many people over the years but there's not many people who would be happily well certainly if they have an addiction or, or a high high dependency that nobody really wants that at all it's not that's not a lifestyle choice but you know there's lots of reasons why it's very difficult for people not to do that kind of thing so what I noticed very quickly is that people were very, very appreciative of the service that we were providing, and uh, it, it was it was like they it's like a lot of people they trusted us, they knew what we were there to do, they didn't fear coming to us and speaking to us in the way that they might do other services. There's not the fear that a policeman might... No, exactly. Because they knew that we... Firstly, we were completely non-judgmental. And we would always tell people that we don't... We would never share any information whatsoever. We, we don't have any kind of relationship with the police or the authorities. And I think Mainline has developed a reputation that was the case. So people were very happy to come and use our services. And if we just took a few minutes to kind of explain, you know, the importance of not sharing needling, uh, you know, injecting equipment, uh, for instance... Um, they would really understand that and you could literally save someone's life from that absolutely there's no doubt that it would that service and others many others across the country doing the same thing would have saved thousands of lives over the years no you know there's no question at all it's the absolutely essential service to provide and there's very kind of low level outreach it's just a very sort of brief intervention you know a quick discussion a quick conversation and uh, but the impact was huge really in terms of how that affected those people that we spoke to. And have you been involved in, at any point in your career, the process of someone turning their lives around and becoming whatever their their ambitions were? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, so I've, I'd say I've met thousands of people over the years who have transitioned their lives from being addicted to a life of recovery. And that for me, that is the most inspiring, motivating thing that um, that really keeps me engaged in you know this type of work, really, because there's no doubt there's people who are really kind of at the at the end of their end of the line, you know, and you know there's nowhere else to turn. Often people talk about the fact that they get to rock bottom before they uh, help is actually able to kind of make a difference to them. When they do get that to that point and they do reach out for help and they do embrace it, then people make the most incredible changes in their lives. I mean, and it's I, I will never, ever um, fail to be impressed with how people uh, are able to turn their lives around. It's it's the most inspiring thing that, that I've ever experienced, uh, seeing people like that. Um, when when I, I worked at, um, at Action for a long time, at Action was a very large drug and alcohol treatment provider, has services all over the country. And uh, one of the initiatives that we um, set up and something that was quite central to was our recovery champions. And 
we created these recovery champions across all of the services, about 100 services across the country. And those recovery champions were people who were in recovery, they'd stopped using, they were actively engaged in services, and they were really making some huge changes, huge strides in the way that they lived their lives. And those champions were, the idea was that they would inspire others that they can achieve the same you know maybe people who are much earlier in their in their journey maybe just engage with services maybe even thinking about engaging with services maybe still using but by having these recovery champions as real life representation about what can be achieved it was really inspiring to others and that really worked today yeah yeah Seeing exactly. someone who's turned their life around someone who's on the road to recovery does inspire yeah it does i think i I would say that's probably one of the most effective ways to that people really do make that change because they can see it can happen yeah and and it's 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 their peers that are doing it you know it's all well and good somebody saying to you you know this is what you need to do this is how you need to change your life but that doesn't really mean a great deal unless you see somebody who you would associate yourself with you know your peer doing the same thing then it's the most powerful way i think to kind of get that message through yeah i can imagine that'd be a hugely rewarding career path so i can understand exactly why you've gone down that route. <laughs> yeah definitely definitely yeah and then fast forward a few years to when did you start with drug science so it started with the drug science uh just just over a year ago now i think it was and it's been a real pleasure to be with drug science uh, i've worked closely with professor david nutz for a number of years actually on we've worked on different projects and different things uh, over the last 10 years or so. I've been on the Drug Science website recently, and I've got to say it's a fantastic website. What you've got up in big letters up at the top is that it is evidence-based, and you can clearly see that by, by looking at the website. You call yourself the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs. So Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs and Evidence-Based, It's those two things combined make for a wonderful website to go to if you, just, if you are really looking for information, if you're looking for the truth, without any sugarcoating and without any uh, exaggeration. That's something that I really love about it. And there's so much information on there. There's information on, I think, the 20 or so, I, I presume they're the most widely used drugs. You have a blog on there and there's so many other resources there's also a journal that i wanted to ask you about in a minute sure but what do you see as drug science's main aims like what's the goal yeah that's a that's a great question our main aim is to tell the truth about drugs and it's as simple as that we know that a lot of what people think or think they know about drugs actually isn't entirely accurate and you know it's not it's not surprising because there have been years of misinformation that the general public has been hearing about drugs the effect on drugs why people take drugs what they do to you good or bad and the whole reason for drug science is to be able to provide the truth without as you say any kind of sugarcoating or um any commercial influence, any uh, government influence at all. So, so what's really important for us is that we're entirely independent and uh, we don't accept any funding from any government or any commercial organisation. Uh, what we say is entirely evidence-based, So, and it's as simple as that. So there's no, there's no political motivation in terms of what we say. There's no commercial... Uh, 
motive. <laughs> There's no... yeah, I think that's really important, isn't it? That yeah, you, that you exactly. know where the funding has come from, so that you know that the information that you're given is the truth, and it's not yeah. on somebody else's agenda. No, exactly, exactly, that, and that, that's the whole point. Because you know, often what people hear from either the government or from uh, industry is not right. It's, it's just not accurate at all. And so, what we provide is information that is purely evidence based. So we only cite past research that's been done we do our own research and everything that we say is based upon that and and nothing else so uh, i think that's what's really important i think that's what makes us unique i don't think there's any other organization in the uk possibly the world that is able to do that at the same kind of level of expertise and authority that we have and i think that's really the reason why so many people come to drug science to find out about drugs and find out information either from their own personal point of view or from a a wider policy point of view as well uh, or just to learn you know that's why people come to us as opposed to some other organizations that couldn't quite give that impartial independent view you were talking a little bit about the amount of scientific research that you do and i'm interested in the journal that you have on there How is that journal set up? Who can contribute? So anybody can contribute to the journal. Um, You can submit an article in the same way that you could others, uh, other journals. The editor is Professor David Nutt. And we think it's one of the, it's a a small journal, but it's it's really, it's got some great information on it. And it's um, really punches above its weight in terms of the, the information that we have on there. But it's open access, so you don't have to subscribe. You can, anybody can, uh, access the journal and find out what we've got on there. And do you feel like you're being listened to by people who can really make a difference, like the policymakers, the people in charge in government? I think they listen to us. Um, they don't listen to us enough, <laughs> but they uh, we have the ear. I mean, so we have um, one of our trustees is a, is a current MP, and we are doing more and more work all the time to engage with policymakers because at the end of the day that's who we're trying to influence uh, one of our key objectives is to influence drug policy and make that make, make drug policy evidence-based and not not based on just political agendas and hearsay yeah exactly and uh, mm. you know things that might win votes but might not save lives so um we, we do engage with politicians and parliamentarians as much as possible but there's lots of work lots and lots of work that we need to do there really lots and lots of um, inroads that we need to make there's a very large section on the website with your trustees and the committee you're very clear about who is involved it's very open and it's nice to to be able to as a member of the public just have a look in and see who is trying to influence the government with their policy making decisions yeah sure it's uh you know that's i think that's the type of approach we're trying to we're trying to take there i should mention we're, we're actually in the process of redoing our website we're uh, it's great to hear you say that you you find it really informative and very comprehensive which it is what sort of changes are you going to make them well just we, we want to make it more accessible to be honest we've been doing quite a lot of thinking around how we can make the information that we have more accessible to our key target audiences. One of those target audiences is the general public. Now, often the problem with scientific information uh, that you you might find published in a journal or has been written off the back of some very kind of detailed research is that it can be quite difficult to to read it and interpret it and understand. And what we want to do at Drug Science is really almost provide 
a service or a mechanism by um, how we can take that very high level scientific information and translate it into messages that the general public and uh, other people who are not scientifically qualified can understand. And so our new website is, is there's going to be a lot of that. We're going to be translating that information into much clearer messages that the general public can understand, get behind. And the idea will be that more people will be engaged in what we are doing and saying, more people will understand, more people will be compelled to want to make a difference and be a, you know, a member of the public who has a voice or a parliamentarian who can change policy or somebody from the media who can write an accurate story, not, not one that is scaremongering or that's important isn't it in the whole age of clickbait and attention grabbing headlines you want the information that they're going to be providing to be actually accurate that's right which is quite difficult i suppose to to mediate yeah that's right exactly so that's that's what we're doing and you know so the website will also be a little bit easier to use and have some new information on it so that will be uh, the next few months we'll be launching that so it's something to look out for something we're very excited about drug science we're um we're doing a lot of work at the moment to really develop it to make it as best as it possibly can be so great looking forward to it yeah on your website currently there is a vast amount of information and there's a wide range of drugs from the legal things like caffeine alcohol all the way to lsd or the drug we were talking about earlier heroin or the other opiates speaking of heroin i became aware probably a couple of years ago about the situation that portugal found itself in i imagine you know quite a bit about this from 1933, for the next four decades, they had a, a very authoritarian ruler. You needed a, a license, like a permit, to have a lighter. The education systems were basically reduced to, I suppose, the essentials. There wasn't really very much trade in and out of Portugal, and by the time the authoritarian government was overthrown, the people didn't have the education, didn't have the, the last 40 years of knowledge in this sense in relation to drugs that the rest of the world might have had. And because of that, I've had a a huge problem with heroin addiction. They had a huge drug problem in Portugal. And what have they done to be able to counter that problem? Because it's not so rife anymore. No, they've done an amazing turnaround, really. So, so Portugal often gets talked about in terms of uh, alternative approaches to people who take drugs or drug policy. And quite rightly so, because they were incredibly brave as well as also having a huge amount of foresight to actually implement the drug policy that they have today so essentially back in early 2000s i think 2001 they took the decision to move from a model of prohibition of drugs like we have in the uk to a decriminalized approach and essentially what that means is they haven't legalized drugs But what they have done is treated people who take drugs and the problems associated with drug taking as a health issue, not a criminal issue. If somebody's taken drugs or caught in possession, rather than being put through a criminal process, they are regarded as having a health issue and treated in that way, which is a much better way of dealing with the problem. And and, uh, what's happened since then is... Their rates of drug use has dropped. Their drug-related deaths has massively declined. Uh, Health outcomes have improved. The crime rates have also reduced. 
And it's it's a real success story in terms of how you could do something a bit differently and uh, it would have a huge, you know, huge benefit as a result. I, th- I think actually the reasons they did it wasn't so much that they thought we have a huge drug problem and we need to change it. I think it was actually uh, kind of financially motivated. I think they were having a lot of difficulties from an economic point of view. And I think they knew that what they couldn't do is just continue to criminalise people who take drugs because obviously it costs a lot of money to do that. It does in this country. We have a lot of people in the criminal justice system because they take drugs and that is hugely damaging to individually to you know uh, but also to the society as a whole in terms of uh, mm. the financial position of the country and then i suppose once they get out of prison they come out with a criminal record and find it difficult to get jobs yeah and- that's right and then it becomes a, almost a vicious circle you know there's no opportunities and so the the only opportunity they do have is to return to the the drug world and you know there's lots of people who lots of people who use drugs also uh, commit crime or involved in drug dealing or in the trade as well so uh, it's it's not a solution. It really isn't. And, uh, the way that Portugal have changed their drug policy um, has has been something to be really regarded very positively. So Portugal, I think, had a very bad problem in relation to most other countries around the world. Do you think that other countries whose problem isn't as bad, for example, here in the UK, it would have as big a uh, an effect it would still make that positive change as far as i'm concerned i think uh, as far as drug science is concerned drug policy should be evidence-based first and foremost but it should also be based on a, a health system not a criminal system the prohibition approach to drugs basically just doesn't work there's been years of you know what's known as the war on drugs it's just made uh, the situation for individuals and society so much worse as a result regardless of what the situation is at the moment, a much better approach is to have a regulated approach to drugs rather than a prohibition approach. If we move on from heroin, just for now, yeah, uh, another drug that's probably more commonly in the public eye, especially at the moment, there's been a little bit of change in recent months. Could you firstly just spell out what the current legal state is of cannabis? Well, cannabis is illegal in the UK, so you can't use it in a recreational way. Uh, but I think probably interesting what you're you're referring to is the changes in medicinal cannabis. Yeah. Uh, in the summertime, cannabis for medicinal purposes was basically rescheduled. So it used to be a Schedule One drug. It's now a Schedule Two drug. Scheduling is different from the classification system. Uh, scheduling refers to drugs that uh, drugs are assessed for their therapeutic value and the potential harm on the individual. Now, cannabis uh, has historically always been a Schedule 1 drug. Schedule 1 drugs say that that substance has no therapeutic value whatsoever and it would be of significant harm to the person who took it. Now, we know, and you know, drug science has done lots and lots of work on this over the years, but we know both of those things are not true at all. Cannabis has helped a huge, hundreds of thousands of people with uh, various different conditions and has made their lives better. It's unquestionable evidence to say that cannabis has very strong therapeutic properties in different ways. So we need lots more evidence to really understand it, but we can clearly see that cannabis has very, very strong 
therapeutic properties. And the other thing is that, well, cannabis actually isn't comparatively as harmful as other substances. And to put it alongside those substances and say that it is it's potentially very harmful in the same way that others are is not right either. And again, not based on evidence. We have evidence to show that cannabis is certainly less harmful than other drugs and less harmful than other legal drugs, such as alcohol, uh, for instance. So in the summertime, that all changed. And that, that, that was a result of a huge amount of campaigning that went on, some, some very clever campaigning, actually. And there was a real groundswell of support all of a sudden. And that came from the general public, but most importantly, it came from Westminster as well. And then all of a sudden, there were politicians who were openly stating that cannabis needs to be made available for people who need it for medicinal purposes. It changed in the summer. It's now been rescheduled to Schedule 2, which means it's available to be used as a medicine, which is great. You know, it's a fantastic achievement. It's uh, it's a marker in history. It will change the way the world views cannabis and uses cannabis. But there is a long, long way to go yet. There's lots of things that are still not quite right in terms of the way that people will be able to access cannabis. It's still very difficult for a patient to access cannabis and there's lots that needs to be changed to, uh, to to enable that to happen much more effectively, I think. Just to highlight the positive effects that cannabis can have, I went to a talk by your colleague, Professor David Nutt. Just before his talk, there was a, a guy called Clark French, who I'm sure you're aware of. Now, yeah. Clark is the director of United Patients Alliance, That's right. and they are a campaign organisation. He told a very moving story about his own personal use of cannabis because he is a, a multiple sclerosis patient. One of the stats that he came out with that I was just shocked with, really, was that the government or the NHS will, will prescribe him £30,000 worth of opioids, which is fine, apparently, in their eyes, but then... What he does is he ends up self-medicating and is essentially, in the eyes of the law, a criminal for alleviating his a lot of the symptoms that he has from multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And it, hearing his story, just if you've never heard of him, just uh, you type his name in, Clark French on YouTube. He really articulates his story, his position very well. He isn't able to get the support and the medication that he actually needs. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I mean, so so I completely agree. Clark Clark is a is an amazing person and has been a, a real inspiration. And in fact, as ha, as has the whole of the United Patients Alliance, and they still have a very strong voice today. They've done a lot actually to help get us to a position where medicinal cannabis is available, or rather legally is available. There's there's so many examples of what Clark you know Clark is just one of thousands of people with that type of story really where yeah you're right the NHS will happily provide you medicine which isn't really helping that person it has many more harms than the alternatives uh, potential harms than the alternatives uh, it would happily prescribe those medicines but up until very recently wouldn't consider prescribing something that is much more effective, has uh, far fewer harms, is uh, potentially, I guess, easier to produce and to distribute. You know, it's a, it's a crazy situation. You've only got to listen to people like Clark and others like him to 
really kind of understand that. You know, we're, we're now like six months since the law changed. Still to think about what position those people have to be in to just to make their lives better is uh, is incredible. Can you imagine if you, if you if you're somebody who you're in constant pain, and the only thing that will alleviate that is a substance that you can get hold of very easily and it has huge effect has a huge positive impact on your life yet you're you're made to be a criminal as a as a result just crazy it doesn't make any sense does it and then when the government like you say call it a schedule one drug meaning that it's got no medicinal purposes well it's yeah ridiculous. it's just yeah. crazy isn't so, it? yeah so, so certainly from the an- anecdotal evidence alone really highlights why that was a very crazy policy but you know things are changing which is good so currently are any doctors able to prescribe it or do they need to pass a certain test or no they need to be they need to be specialists at at the moment so a gp wouldn't be able to prescribe and that's uh that's one of the issues i think really and you know i I understand why uh change has to happen in a kind of an iterative way and there's lots of things that need to be worked out but at the moment things aren't really much different from how they were six months ago, to be honest. I think really? uh, there are lots of people who thought, fantastic, now the law's changed. I don't have to grow my own anymore. I don't have to get it from, you know, these you know, in illicit ways. I can now go to my GP. I can I can pick up a prescription and it's going to change my life. But actually, that hasn't been the case at all. There's, there's, uh, there's actually very few um, instances that people have actually been prescribed medicinal cannabis at the moment. So we, you know, we we know there's lots to be done, and drug science is doing a lot of work to help to provide information around medics in particular to understand what medical cannabis is, how it should be prescribed, who it should be prescribed to, how to diagnose conditions that would benefit from having medicinal cannabis given to that patient. We're trying to help to inform around those sorts of things. The reason I went to go and see the talk with Professor David Nutt and uh, Clark French is because I'd previously read a framework for a regulated market for cannabis in the UK. So Professor David Nutt was a co-author on that. What I was quite impressed with was that you have the Durham Chief of Police and uh, another, I think, former Cambridge Chief of Police as well. So people who are not just looking at it from one point of view that you've got people looking at it from a law enforcement point of view as well. And these people all believe that there can be a framework to implement in the UK for cannabis. Do you feel like because of maybe publications like that, there are movements in the recreational use of cannabis as opposed to the medicinal use as well? Is that something that's going to come over the next couple of years or what sort of time frame are we looking at? So I think it's difficult to predict the future and you know there's a there's an awful lot that would have to happen for a drug like cannabis to become illegalized um, but in my opinion i think i i personally think that's it's something that it's not a case of if it's going to happen it's more much more when that's going to happen i think there's definitely a there's much better understanding about cannabis now than there was only a few years ago there's some very good information about cannabis in terms of you know the harms and how it compares to other drugs that are either more harmful or less harmful Uh, what we certainly know is cannabis isn't as harmful as a lot of people think it is and drug science is an organization as i've said that wants drug policy to to be based on evidence well if you did that then you would very likely want to see cannabis as uh, perhaps a regulated 
substance in the in the same way that perhaps alcohol is well not in the same way that alcohol is regula- regulated but uh, ha- capacity. yeah has got has got uh, some you know some controls around how it's used where it's used who can use it but nonetheless it shouldn't be an illegal drug that would mean that person is undertaking criminal activity by possessing it or using it so yeah i think i think you know from my point of view cannabis will will change in that way in in the coming years and uh, the sooner it does the better as far as i'm concerned if i can just bring out a couple of points made in in that paper that i've just referenced the current policy a has not been an effective deterrent and b creates opportunities for criminal entrepreneurs now those to me seem like both of them seem like great arguments for legalization in the way that if you were to take what is currently an unregulated criminal market and legalize it with rules with um with policy you would either be able to reduce the work that those criminals have or they would turn into upstanding taxpaying businessmen either way it, it reduces the problem the other thing that I was really shocked with is it talks about the THC and CBD levels a little bit. And I was really shocked to find that the levels have changed quite a lot. So maybe you can talk to this a little bit more, but THC levels have risen from around 5% in the 1990s to currently around 14%. People buying that have no idea. You you don't know if you're getting something that's 14%, if you're getting something that's 20%, if you're getting something that's 5%. So either self-medicating or doing it recreationally, understanding the dose that you're taking has become very hard. And at the same time, CBD, which has be which has had uh, quite a lot of um, attention, I suppose, in basically the health and fitness industry as well as the the drug industry, as something that's quite a therapeutic substance, it's very good for you. The levels of CBD have been dropping. So. Could you maybe explain a little bit better about the relationship that THC and CBD yeah, have? Yeah, sure. There's lots you talked about there, but I think essentially this is this this is what comes down to the prohibition approach. Basically, the fact that uh, cannabis is is an illegal substance, it puts it entirely in the hands of criminals. Now, there's lots of problems that results from that. Firstly, criminals obviously don't have to follow any kind of regulations or any kind of standards uh, that you might find in things that are regulated by the food standards agency for instance so who knows what's in anything that you might buy on the street uh, from a dealer nobody knows what what actually even the dealer isn't really going to know what that product is so you're going to be firstly you're going to be taking something that you have no idea what it is and it could be you know the thc levels could be completely different from you know what you expect as you say so you you know you could be getting something that is gonna really kick you over really uh, rather than just you know giving the effect that you want uh the reasons that th levels i think have really risen is again it's a result of prohibition it's the the drug trade uh, has a vested interest in people using more and more or people wanting to buy more and more of their product and it's led to people using more cannabis and wanting it stronger and stronger because you know they're developing dependency issues with it and that's when you, you want a stronger substance and, and the criminals know that they can charge more for uh, higher strength products as well so it's in their interest to produce very high levels of THC in cannabis because uh, they can charge more for that product as well so 
all of this is a result of the fact that cannabis is illegal and just think that how that could be changed if uh, instead you introduce a regulated system like alcohol for instance where it is manufactured under some very strict controls where it's very clear about what the product is what the thc cbd levels are in that product uh, so the individual will know what they're taking uh, they'll be better informed so they won't do something that's going to put them at risk they won't be as likely to do that you know the whole thing would be dramatically improved if you were able to kind of regulate that market rather than just purely leave it in the hands of criminals who let's face it criminals are not really concerned about the potential harms of that substance they're, they're only concerned about how much money they're going to make that's what it comes down to you talked about the cbd levels uh, in the health and health and fitness industry yeah so uh, you know i don't i don't know a huge amount about that but it's um i think it's uh, something about the muscle recovery there are some very qualified people within drug science who would be able to explain that in a lot of detail but you know my kind of more primitive understanding is that different different cbd levels and different thc levels will have a different effect on an individual and actually that individual maybe who has the same condition as another person they may need a slightly different thc cbd ratio to help them so it's very much an individual uh thing i think when it comes to that there's been a lot of stories in the media about skunk very high thc content cannabis that gives people a higher percentage chance of of getting psychosis is that evidence-based and does the cbd content level also have an effect in that as well there's very little evidence to say that cannabis causes psychosis our understanding is that if somebody has has a predisposition to psychosis then if they use cannabis and particularly high strength cannabis then there's a higher chance that that would bring about the onset of psychosis with that individual but i'm pretty sure that what we we have we haven't seen that cannabis would cause psychosis in somebody who has perhaps never had any issues with that in the past it's not as far as i know that's not a very that's not something that's been reported on okay it it seems like a little bit of a blurry line because if you are one of these people that has a higher predisposition to develop psychosis being told or hearing in the media that uh smoking cannabis is now legal might make you think oh, maybe it's a it's a good thing maybe I, maybe it'll have some health benefits for me it might have some health benefits for some people but for some people also it could bring sure. it, bring about this psychosis yeah, so absolutely how do you square yeah. that so well i mean at, at the end of the day what we need is for people to be informed to understand what taking a drug will do and if they people have the full information they're then able to make their own objective choice based on that information that they have and you know, we need to do more research. But if we can, if we can say that the chances of cannabis causing this condition is this, the chance, the chances of it helping this condition is this. People are then free to make their own choice about whether they should do it or not. At the end of the day, I personally and drug science would never condone drug taking. We we don't advocate for taking drugs. We just want people to be fully informed as to what drugs do, and to be able to make the best possible choice for them in terms of what they want to do. So talking about cannabis as a, as a legalised substance is kind of here nor there, really. What we want is for people to understand what cannabis does, what it means, and then to be able to make those choices themselves. And to not, to not have uh, punitive 
consequences if they decide to take it because what we know is that's not going to help anybody uh, at all. Yeah, I think that's a really good standpoint. Just one more thing about the paper that I keep talking about. Uh, there's a section in it related very much to what we've been talking about already. And there's a there's a really nice graph which will be quite hard to explain. It lets you know the relationship between social and health harms and like the spectrum of drug policy. So on the one end, you have what we currently have, which is an unregulated criminal market, which uh, in the graph depicts quite a high social and health harm. So we've talked about some of these social and health harms already, like social harms like the, the criminal gangs and the, maybe the health harms like psychosis. You don't know what strength you're taking. On the far other end, you have an unregulated legal market, which also has quite high social and health harms. Maybe those are a little bit more difficult for me to to get my head around why they're so high. I suppose the health harms would be similar either way. If they're, if it's unregulated and legal, you know, you don't have to say how much THC is in it. You don't have to say anything about it. You're just giving it to people, and uh, we're in pretty much the same situation now, other than the people using are not criminals. There's really a spectrum, isn't there, of how to how to develop drug policy. And uh, on one side, you have complete prohibition, which is pretty much where we are today. On the other side, the other end of the scale, you'd say is complete free market, uh, legalized, legalized free market without any restrictions whatsoever. Both of those ends of the scale are almost equally as ineffective I would say and what we really want again at drug science we've done lots of work to show that the ideal position would be something in between those two things which would look much more like a state regulated model so by that I mean if you think about alcohol alcohol is a is quite heavily regulated substance there's strict rules about where you can buy it who can buy it how old you need to be where you can consume it and what's inside it as well uh, yeah exactly there's some really good labeling to tell you exactly what it is and to all intents and purposes that works very well you know the vast majority of people in the world don't have a problem using alcohol as a substance it has it does have lots of negative consequences but that's i think that's a result of other things like cultural things and uh how the alcohol industry uh, allowed to market quite as heavily as they are uh, but that's another discussion i think uh, what we uh what we know about drugs what we'd say about all drugs is that really the ideal the ideal position would be to have a a state regulated model uh for all drugs so you'd have probably different sanctions for different drugs dependent on their harm but again as i as i've mentioned often that should be based on the evidence of what the harm is as well as what the benefits are as well. And you, you have to kind of look at both those things uh, together. The way the drug policy is at the moment is some things are really completely about face, I would say. So we have alcohol, which is a legal substance, a regulated substance, but cause it does actually cause quite a lot of harm. Where on the other end of the scale, we've got, we have things like psychedelic substances, which are completely illegal and carry the heaviest sanctions for possession and use. And yet we know the evidence shows that there's very little harm 
that is associated with using those drugs and very little harm, almost none. In fact, no, nobody's ever died directly from taking uh, psychedelic drugs. You know, you, you can't overdose on these things. You can't overdose on LSD or psilocybin. You can't overdose on uh, cannabis uh, as well. And yet they're treated as some of the most harmful, in the same way as very harmful drugs, such as heroin, crack cocaine, you know, that, those types of drugs uh, come to the same kind of penalties, the same. And so, you know, so it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And people would listen to what the government says and aren't able to make good choices based on that. They're not, they're not able because they're not informed. Psilocybin, you mentioned it a minute ago, it really intrigues me. All psychedelic and hallucinogenic drugs as well. I think one article said that they activate or deactivate a similar sort of area in your brain, I think in the frontal cortex, that regulates your ego or controls your <laughs> ego, which is why people have a sense that they feel very close to the people that are around them because they can dissolve everybody's ego and feel a lot more connected, Yeah, which I think's something that's maybe missing quite a lot in, in society <laughs> today. Um, yeah. and, and aside from that, there seems to be quite a lot about specifically psilocybin, for medicinal uses I yeah think maybe you can tell us about the treatments for anxiety or depression or yeah. ocd well exactly firstly here's another great example of why current drug policy is really making it much more difficult to be able to understand these things better because it's very difficult to do research on psychedelic drugs at the moment because they are schedule one drugs they they're legal it's very difficult to be able to do research we need to do much more research but what you're referring to is uh, there has been some recent studies and professor nutt has been leading on these for the use of psychedelic drugs and specifically psilocybin treating people with with mental health issues like anxiety and depression and those studies are showing and they're 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 ongoing at the moment but they're showing that there is potential for a huge therapeutic benefit for people suffering from let's say anxiety to be able to use psilocybin alongside more common treatments like psychosocial interventions uh, actually that has a really really dramatic effect on the health outcomes to that person as i said it's another another example where drug policy needs to change to allow us to be able to study these types of things in much more detail because the potential we, we can see the potential there's a huge potential that drugs like psilocybin and lsd could be hugely beneficial to people's health uh, but we don't know. We just don't know enough about it. Have you heard of Dennis McKenna? Terence McKenna? They're American, I think they call them ethnobotanists. Right. Terence McKenna uh, was a public speaker as well, very eloquent speaker. He died a, a little while ago, but his brother has carried on promoting specifically psychedelic drugs. And he, this year, no, sorry, in 2017, organised a symposium called the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. Right. Which was the second one that he, sorry, the second one that has taken place, the first one being in the late 60s. One of his reasons behind creating this event was because the problems that you've been, they've been saying, that it's very difficult to do a lot of research on these things, especially over the last 50 years since, well, he talks about, since in America. Yeah. They brought in some new legislation in 1970. Yeah. During the Nixon administration, there was the DEA. And since then, it's been really, really difficult to do any research, like proper scientific research. Yeah, that's right. And that's mirrored in England as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the UK followed suit uh, like a year later, brought the same legislation in. 
Yeah. yeah. In that legislation, that contained the scheduling and the classifications. Yeah, that's right. So we currently have schedule one, two, three, four. I think it goes. Uh, five. I think there's and there's sub subsets of those schedules as well. So it's quite quite a complex thing. And then aside from that, we also have classifications. So class A, B, and C. Is there any way that you can break down what they really mean? Because I, I feel like I am more read up on this subject than most people but I don't really understand the differences. Well, it's not surprising that you don't, and there's probably not many people who can really, who really do understand the differences between you know, why we have a classification system, why we have scheduling at the same time. But as far as I can understand, uh, the classification system is there to control the use and the possession of drugs and to impose criminal sanctions if you contravene those those rules basically so if you're caught in possession of a class a drug then you're going to face quite severe criminal penalties which might include imprisonment and various other things as well scheduling of drugs is really i think it's supposed to determine the medicinal value of a substance as well as how harmful that substance is to a person so it's not there to uh, necessarily to impose criminal sanctions but it does uh, I think because if you did contravene a schedule one drug then potentially you could you could face some very severe criminal sanctions uh, I think that's the idea between the two but you know why we have two systems doesn't doesn't really make much sense to me I would have thought there's a better way that you could uh, regulate the use of drugs are there examples then of a drug being a class A drug but a schedule 4 drug so it does have medicinal uses but recreationally yeah there is there is some great examples heroin for instance is a great example because it's obviously a class A drug but it's a uh, schedule 2 drug because heroin which is morphine uh, or diamorphine almost everybody in the world has or morphine rather diamorphine is heroin so morphine to control pain when they you know have an operation or something like that uh, but essentially, it's the same. It's it's heroin, so it's a class A drug. So if you're using it recreationally, you know you, you'll face the most severe penalties. But in a medicinal world, you can't make it a Schedule One drug because obviously it does have medicinal purposes. But what's ridiculous then is you then have drugs like cannabis up until the summertime, but also drugs like LSD and psilocybin and uh, MDMA, which are all far less harmful than heroin but they are supposedly well they're in schedule one which would suggest that they're more harmful and they don't have any medicinal purposes but they have just as much medicinal benefit as morphine has it just seems like our our scheduling and classification system is a little bit out of date it's completely out of date it's not it's not evidence-based it's uh, it's politically motivated and it's causing a lot of harm as a result. People are suffering, people are dying as a result of the the current system, I, I would say. So what's the resistance to change then, coming from a political point of view? Well, it's, it's, not, the, it's not a popular vote winner, I think you would say. It's, uh, hmm. you know, the UK is in a bit of political turmoil at the moment and you can't imagine uh, any of the major political parties looking for a, a big change in policy at the moment because people who vote in general elections are people who are much more you know not not willing to kind of understand you know how, how drug policy can change but you know the type of people who who might think that a kind of zero tolerance uh, approach would be the right one 
Why is that? Why do people? Why are people so misinformed and have that inaccurate predisposition? Well, there's been, there's been there's been years of uh, misinformation, uh, years of this constant messaging that all drugs are bad, and people who take drugs are bad people. Mm. Uh, you know, people don't have any willpower or they don't have any moral compass and they should know better or why are they doing something that's going to harm them you know people have had years of being told through the media through through government that if you take drugs bad things will happen mm. and you know it's become ingrained in uh sort of, we could we could go back 50 years you know as you say and if you've heard it all your life it's going to take quite a lot of uh convincing to think slightly differently i think and i know i i you know i have faith that in generations to come it would that will change i think the younger generation now will be much much better informed about these things growing up with the information that drug science well yeah can exactly. give people absolutely yeah you know if people understand what we're saying then they're going to be much more inclined to think that current drug policy isn't working and needs to change there's some very clear reasons why that's the case you know it's a very very real reasons people are people are dying as a result of current drug policy in politics money drives quite a lot it seems very backwards that like you mentioned in portugal one of the main reasons was a a monetary reason can the politicians see that oh maybe we'll alleviate some of the stress on that's currently on the nhs or on the prison systems both of which are suffering massively at the moment and struggling that that seems like a vote winner to me. Can they not it spin does. it in a different direction? The UK are, I think, probably a few steps behind other parts of the world in that respect. So, yeah, obviously, Portugal have blazed the trail, but there are there are lots of other parts of the world that are really changing the way they they approach drug policy. And it's quite easy to understand the concept that if we didn't criminalise so many people for taking drugs in the UK. We wouldn't have the overpopulated prison systems that we have. You know, the majority of people in prison are there through drug-related offences or the reasons that the illicit drug trade causes. And And uh, even the byproducts of that, I feel, as well, because they might not necessarily have direct links to drugs, but they, they might have grown up around that. So the criminal world seems the norm to them. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of areas in the UK where life chances are, you know, not not great for people there's lots of inequality and for 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 a lot of people i think they they probably see there's very little choice that they have other than to go into this kind of criminal way of living but you could remove that opportunity altogether and you could replace it with something that is much more uh an opportunity you know we we could get rid of the theoretically you could remove the black market for drugs by legalizing those drugs or you know regulating those drugs and that that simply wouldn't exist and people wouldn't be getting criminal records they wouldn't be going to jail they wouldn't be wouldn't be destroying their lives you know a young person who perhaps is caught with a little bit of weed smoking gets a criminal record it destroys the rest of their life that's it you know they have a criminal record they won't get a job after that you know they won't they won't have those life chances and that's just a direct result of the current system that we have so I feel like with weed that is maybe changing a little bit. I think a lot of police, police constable, yeah, the, yeah. Um, what do they call the the chief police constables? Yeah. yeah, a lot of them have come out and said that people coming in possession of small amounts they of cannabis, yeah, they they're going to turn a blind eye to it. Which is which is why there's you know I mean you have to 
we have to remember the positives and and uh, I think you mentioned Mike Barton before he you yeah. know he's he's been one of the leading lights for essentially what he's done is decriminalized cannabis up in Durham and uh, simply by saying they're actually not bothered about anybody who's smoking cannabis as long as it's not causing any sort of public nuisance or anything like that then uh, then that then that's fine they're not worried about it how has he been able to do that because the police chief can't just make up laws. Surely they've got to follow a certain code of conduct. I think you need to speak to him <laughs> about yeah. it, really. But I guess it's a case of uh, turning a blind eye is probably the, the best way of putting You know, the, the police police are incredibly under-resourced and overstretched in terms of what they're trying to do and they can't do everything. And in my opinion, if they, if they decide that one thing they're not going to focus on is convicting people for smoking a little bit of weed, then that's a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I just, uh, I'm impressed get that he's been able it? to, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, like you say, they're very stretched and he's doing the best job he can. And he's uh, he's picking and choosing the, the things that have the biggest influence. I think Mike's a leader and people listen to leaders and he's really taking something forward and people actually may be struggling to kind of question why he's doing it or the positive results that he's seeing in Durham. So because of that, you'll get all those people that you were talking about before who've been indoctrinated with this belief that drugs are bad, everybody who takes drugs are bad people, and they've been getting this message constantly for the last 50 years. If they then have a chief of police telling them that there's a different way, a more effective way uh, to tackle the issue of drugs, you've got to think that a lot more people might start listening. I think, yeah, I think it has done already, exactly. And that's the way that it's going to change, isn't it, I think? People in their communities who are who stand up and say this needs to change, people with the right amount of influence and the ability to do that, that's what's going to change the wider drug policy issues, definitely. So Mike, you know, Mike is doing that in leaps and bounds and there others are following and as I said, it's not it's not a question of if it's gonna happen, it's just a question of when it's gonna happen and how long it takes and you know, how many how many lives are destroyed in the meantime how many lives can we save in the meantime you know that's what it comes down to as far as i'm concerned so we've had your personal opinion and your professional opinion on the legalization of drugs how about from another personal perspective if you realize that a person in your family or a child of yours has started smoking cannabis or doing some of the other drugs that you've mentioned what's your feeling with that and how would you deal with it i guess you're asking me as a parent and yeah. uh, obviously that brings a different perspective on things as a, you know, it's, obviously, it's an emotive thing rather than, yeah. uh, you know, seeing, seeing things on a wider scale. But I think being as open and honest as I can and answering that question. So I would never condone drug taking for my kids. And what I would want them to do is there's two things really for them to be informed as best as possible, to know the truth, to understand the facts about what they're doing. And then for them to make a personal choice based on that. And I think there's probably not much more you could really expect as a parent or hope for really other than those two things. Because my kids are very young. (laughs) We've got the teenage years to to go through yet and everything that that brings. But what I do know from my my own childhood, from, uh, from others around me, kids will do what they want to do certainly you know authoritative figures try to tell them not to do something and that really doesn't work if kids want to take drugs they're going to take drugs and at the moment kids are taking drugs 
but with very little idea, very little information, very little guidance about what they're doing. And that can only be a bad thing. That can only lead to more harm, more lives destroyed, more lives lost. And if there's much better information and understanding, and if people are able to make rational, evidence-based decisions about what they're doing, that can only be a good thing that can only help so so the question you asked me was i guess was what would i do if i caught my if i saw my kid smoking a bit of weed or uh, doing something like that well you know i'd be uh, upset as a parent for sure Uh, but i'd want them to i'd want them to really understand what it was they're doing and why they're doing it and what the risks are what the benefits are and to make an informed decision based on that. And, that and as i say that's that's as much as i could hope for really do you have the same view of cannabis as you do psychedelics well yeah I, same view for any drug is what i'm saying it's any drug if you know what the harms are what the benefits are and able to weigh those up against each other then you're going to make the best possible decision about whether you're going to do that now a very harmful drug like uh, heroin uh, one would hope that people would see that there's a lot of harm associated with it. There's a, certainly different ways of using it, which can lead to other types of harm as well. And the sensible choice would be not to do it. Whereas a psychedelic drug is a completely different, a completely different thing, to be honest. You can't really compare opiates and psychedelics. But if that person understands what, psychedel- what, what would happen if they take a psychedelic drug then they can decide for themselves whether or not to do it. And I suppose if they also have the information, how much is a suitable amount to take, a well, yeah, recommended amount to take? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's information that you can provide, but there's also, we also talk about culture, aren't we? We can use alcohol as an example, and people refer to, they when they were younger, they used to drink alcohol, and they, you know you kind of learnt you were able to teach yourself what how much to drink and you might have a bad experience and you know you would kind of learn as you go along but society helps that process to happen because culture is that you know you shouldn't drink when you're young you should drink in licensed premises with responsible people around you responsible adults you know you know is that that rite of passage is surrounded by people who are there to help and care for you and that's because the culture has been built in that way because alcohol is a regulated substance very carefully regulated substance that doesn't exist for any of the illicit uh, drugs but if it did then you'd hope the same kind of thing would would happen you know somebody who smoked cannabis would if there was a culture of uh, try something at very low strength to begin with see see how it is see how you how you feel how you respond to it see if you want something slightly different to it then that has to be a better approach than going to somebody you don't know on a street corner who sells you something which you you know you don't have any idea what it is and you take it it could cause uh, severe consequences or yeah it's know. a very compelling so, argument yeah. yeah exactly what what i'm not saying is that you know you should just legalize all drugs at all i'm not saying that all i'm saying is firstly we should be informed secondly people should make their personal choices and thirdly we should have a much better regulated system uh, regulation that isn't prohibition because prohibition is a form of regulation right for Pro- prohibition is saying that uh, we're regulating it so that it's illegal and nobody can have it uh, so not prohibition regulation is in there are very set specific circumstances in which this drug might be a good opportunity a good thing to do in this particular opportunity it seems like what you're saying that is that education of people is 
is probably one of the best ways to mitigate a lot of the negatives associated with drugs. How do you feel education in school is going? I don't know how much you work with schools, but is there enough education in schools or should they be getting the education for this elsewhere? Schools would be the perfect place for people to receive that education. That We do, we do have some good relationships with some schools and some academic institutions. Uh, we try to help where we can and we're very much open to working with the uh, educational authorities, definitely. But yeah, young kids need to be educated and not educated in a kind of a don't do drugs, it's bad kind of a way, because that, that's what's been happening for many years. And actually, the evidence shows that that often creates more problems than it uh, causes. You know, I remember when I was young, having uh, somebody from the police coming in and giving a lecture during an assembly about how drugs will kill you if you take them and nobody listens to that you know it doesn't it just doesn't work so education in a way that kids will relate to they'll understand and not not just being told all the bad stuff you know maybe talk about the good things about using substances you know why people might want to do that and how it might be safer to do that you know that's uh that's the type of education that you, you treat kids with respect and they will they will listen and they'll make their own minds up yeah, if you have a police officer coming in trying to scare you, I suppose there's that rebellious nature in all people, well, yeah. all children especially, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Of, especially of teenage years. So, yeah, having somebody explain to you that there's both benefits and negatives will well, yeah. make you like believe them maybe a little bit more. Well, yeah, exactly. And also to be able to show that what you're talking about is is based on evidence, based on uh, things that we know. And uh, those things can't really be disputed because there's, there's evidence to show that that is the case. And if you're told, if you're told something that you just don't, if, if you just don't believe, you're just not going to listen. And, you, and, and anything else that you might say that is correct might just go out the window as well because, you know, that respect is gone. So we want to engage with, uh, with the younger generations for sure. And we want them to really understand the evidence and the, the truth about drugs. Sure. What else is there that might be coming to the market that people might not know very much about that you have high hopes for in relation to maybe new drugs or are there any new drug trials that, have, that are out at the moment? The things that I think are quite exciting at the moment is briefly talked about it, but the, the research that's been done around psychedelic drugs and how they may benefit people with mental health problems. I think there's, um, for me, there's a there's a whole world of potential that we could really be starting to explore again. So there's, there's been a period of time where there's no research has been done on these drugs and it's starting to happen again. And it's very exciting to think about how those types of substances can be used for people with mental, you know, um, you know, let's not forget mental health is a growing problem and we need to, we need to be able to develop new ways new innovative ways to to help that situation and the use of psychedelic drugs could be one of those things it's very exciting to think about that is there any any message that you want to give to people anything else that you want to say with regards to any of the subjects that we've spoken about yeah absolutely i'd love to talk just a little bit more about drug science as well so we've got some great ambitions at drug science what we really want to see is a world that determines its drug policy based on evidence based on the truth about drugs so ultimately, we want to see a world where drug control is rational and evidence-based, where drug users are much better understood, where drug use is in, you know, an informed thing. And really, I guess what we really want to see is drugs are used to heal, not harm. 
there are many examples where people can use substances to improve their health and well-being and it doesn't have to be all the negative consequences that people often think about drugs so that's what we want you know a world where drugs are there for the betterment of society and how can people get in, uh, involved in that one of the things that we're doing is creating a, a what we call our drug science community and our community is is a new initiative for drug science so we want to engage as many people as we possibly can to kind of bring them into drug science a bit really and help and for the, for them to feel they are helping us essentially what we want people to do is uh, to sign up to give us their details and we will then bring them into the organization and there's lots of benefits that we can offer people and, and different kind of levels that people can be involved uh, but we have events and talks and different things that people can attend people will be able to contribute to the way that we develop our priorities and do the things that we're doing to develop the research that we are to help us to get the messages across so actually there's an opportunity right now for people to become a founding member of our drug science community We want people to be much more engaged with what we're doing because we see that as the best way that we can, not only can we help to influence the sort of the wider perspective, but we can also listen to what people think and their own views about drugs and what they think, and then use that to formulate our own research and our own opinions as well. So the drug science community is is uh, is a really exciting initiative that we are in the process of building on right now. The website will carry the information that uh, people will need to know yeah do you want to give the everyone the website yeah sure it's www.drugscience.org.uk .org.uk yeah cool. that's right yeah and have you got twitter details and facebook uh, details yep i think if you uh try if you just search drug science it will come up or professor david nuts or independent scientific committee on drugs all those types of things will will throw up drug science right i'll put a load of links as well in the, in the description great this has been amazing i've really enjoyed speaking to you it's so informative and I think that it's a conversation that a lot of people have missed out on. It's going to hopefully just provide a lot more positive opportunities for a lot more people in the future. Also the healthier way to look at drugs as a society. It's great. Like I've said before about your website, what I really love is that it's like no nonsense. You don't sugarcoat things. You don't exaggerate things. It's, it's factual. It's what people really need to know. And uh, thanks for all the work that you're doing. Yeah, no, no problem at all. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be uh, a part of this for sure. So uh, very happy to be involved. Thank you. Great stuff. Good. I love that conversation. I loved speaking to David. That was brilliant. So much great information there. He wants everything to be based on research. He doesn't like to say things that are misconstrued or that are leading people the wrong way. He's all about making that difference and doing the right thing. It really makes you think in a little bit more depth about the correct way to go around these sorts of issues. If you want to get involved, join that drug science community that we were talking about. You can do that by going to the drug science website, www.drugscience.org.uk. Now, we said there's a lot of things that they can offer you. One of these things is some free events or talks that they put on. There's one on there at the moment. It's a magic medicine screening. After that, there is a Q&A with David Nutt. Have a little click on that. You can sign up to the drug science community and it's free for drug science community members. Also on that website, you can donate to them. It's such a great cause. They've also got academic research. They've got a blog if you want to know a little bit more about what's going on. They'll keep you up to date. 
and there is info galore on drugs. I mentioned it in the podcast, but you can click on, I think, about 20 different drugs there, and there's so much information for those curious types among you. I had a blast looking through them. Oh, we also spoke about Clark French from United Patients Alliance. Give him a Google. He's done a few really great interviews. Actually, I'll put a link in the description as well for him. I'll also put a link in the description for the paper that I spoke a little bit about that Professor David Nutt and the Durham Police Chief Constable Mike Barton were contributors to. A framework for a regulated market for cannabis in the UK. Recommendations from an expert panel. Again, so much information in there. What an awesome read that was. As always, you can find me on Twitter at FascinatePod. You can find Drug Science at Drug underscore Science. Get in touch, let us know what you thought of this episode. And just before I go, next time I'll be speaking to Anthony Painter from the RSA. He's written a paper on universal basic income, so I'm so excited to speak to him about that. If you don't know what universal basic income is yet, listen to the next episode and all will be explained. Thanks for listening. See ya. See ya.